Hi, welcome to the ACA, Adult Children Voices Across America speaker meeting. If you'd like to attend this meeting live, go to adultchildren.org, click on online meetings, and then scroll down to find Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. And I think you'll enjoy tonight's speaker. It is Stephanie from Long Island, New York. Thank you, Adam. So I'm Stephanie, adult child, and I just want to offer all of you gratitude for being here and for holding space for my story. Um, something that uh, I haven't really um, shared in finer detail publicly um, too often. Um, so um, I think what's what's funny is is I sit here. Um, part of my work is is public, and um, I don't really have nerves when um, when I'm in my workspace. It's it's my shield. Um, but I'm I'm feeling myself with all these written words here, and um, feeling kind of without words right now. But. Uh, I'm just gonna go into story because sometimes that's a little easier. So I never drank and I never did drugs, but I was raised by two parents who did both more than casually. They were young parents, um, they were narcissistic and they were unwilling to face their pain. So they took it out on me and as the oldest child, I happen to be their scapegoat. I have a younger sibling. I'm also highly sensitive, which created many challenges. My days were constantly um, a barrage of chaos. They were governed by my father's unpredictability, his moods, his rage, um, even his drinking, and my mother's reaction to it. Uh, my home was, was like a live wire all the time. But it was confusing because it was also fun and spontaneous and creative and interesting. So between the ages of seven and nine, um, I was repeatedly incested by my paternal grandfather, who was also the family's Judaic patriarch. My parents didn't know um, they would drop my sibling and I off at my grandparents' house who lived right outside of New York City when they would go into New York to have an overnight. And my memories were suppressed until age 14. But as I came to learn at a very young age, the body truly keeps the score. I was diagnosed with asthma at age eight. I developed recurring bronchitis around the same time, and I had a very, very serious bout with pneumonia. Anorexia set in at age 12, and then bulimia took over. I was shamed and blamed for being too sensitive. I was regularly mocked and judged, and I was cast out as too emotional, dramatic, and manipulative. Nobody saw my demons, or nobody was willing to see my demons. That being said, it seemed that they were able to see my brothers. My mother battled with depression and mania. And when I was 15, she was diagnosed as bipolar. 
and was the family's designated victim. And I was destined to follow suit. She continued to drink and do drugs, not caring uh, if that impacted her or her children. Coming from affluence resulted in my parents often saying to me, you have no idea what problems are. There are people with real problems in this world. The issue here is that you're spoiled. And when the memories of the incest flooded in around the age of 14, it took me three years to muster the courage to tell my parents what my grandfather had done. And when I finally did, my father's anger was palpable and my mother's silence broke my heart in two. They were more concerned with whether or not I was telling the truth than the damage that it had done to me and continued to do to me. Their response, my father said he confronted my grandfather, yet we continued to spend Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Passover with my grandparents, like nothing had happened. In my 20s, I impulsively got married at the age of 25 to somebody that I didn't love, thinking that it could solve my problems. And then I divorced him. And I also had two suicidal depressions in my 20s. My internal narrative was I was too emotional, dramatic, and manipulative. I was born into affluence, so my problems weren't that bad. In fact, I was just spoiled. I would never know the value of a dollar. And Judaism was more important than truth and forgiving and forgetting was my road to salvation. So it was in my late 20s that I kind of decided to start to say, fuck that. And I left my ex. Thanks to the, uh, the love and uh, the non-judgment from my maternal grandmother and for many of the gifts she bestowed upon me, her and my grandfather, I was able to go to uh, culinary school and then graduate school and to dig deep into the thing that actually helped me survive, which was food. So uh, while I was struggling with anorexia and bulimia and my parents dismissed it and did not choose to get me help, they choose to threaten me. I was a gymnast, so they choose to tell me, chose to tell me that if I didn't stop, I'd never do gymnastics again. Um, I just figured that I was gonna learn about food. I was gonna get educated and I started to cook as a summer job. And that's where my light lived, was in the kitchen. And with, and I guess clean eating, because I was into clean eating in the 1980s when I was um, a teenager. It was the only way I could feel clean because I felt so dirty. So I spent most of uh, the later part of my 20s and my 30s um, in therapy and uh, voraciously reading and, and doing all the things that I possibly could to make me well. Um, I was diagnosed as bipolar in my late twenties after these two suicidal depressions. I played with medication for years. Um, 
And about 10 years ago, after I had happened upon research that talked about complex, complex PTSD being misdiagnosed as bipolar, I went to my psychopharmacologist and I told her that I wanted to try to go off all my medication and that I didn't think that I was bipolar like my mother. And she agreed to support me and I went off all my medication. And, um, but that's not without a tremendous amount of work that I do not take lightly for a hot second. So I had been doing all of this work for all these years and um, four years ago or a little over four years ago, um, I have two kids. I'm married to a wonderful man. I woke up every day feeling like I was gonna die. Um, and it wasn't like I was suicidal. I just felt like literally I would wake up and I just was gonna die. Like I just didn't, there was, there was nothing. And I had so many beautiful things in my life that I couldn't see or feel. And I wouldn't even call it a massive depression. It's, it, it, I, was, I was desperately trying to solve a puzzle every day that I couldn't solve. I had my husband in one corner, my parents in another, my brother in another. And uh, I ran, as the universe would have it, I ran into a woman that I know and she was telling me about you know, her experience with AA. And I said, yeah, you know, I, I didn't drink. AA is, you know, you know, my parents drank. She said, have you heard of adult children of alcoholics? And I was like, no, what is that? She told me, and I literally found a meeting that day, spoke with the woman who would become my sponsor. And I started going to meetings, two meetings a week, where I have two kids. I'd wake up at six in the morning to get to this meeting, you know, 45 minutes away from my house. And my husband would take the kids to school and so on and so forth. And so, you know, what I started to realize as I embarked on, on the step work um, was that I was walking into what I felt like was um, an office with all these filing cabinets that I could literally take all of my experiences and thoughts and, and ideas and actions and reactions and relationships and they belonged somewhere. It was unbelievable. It was what I was looking for. It, it's, it's given me the tools to unemesh from my family of origin and to release these constraints that I've been bound by and I was born into that were my birth contract. So you know, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was preparing for this, um, of course, are all the tools that I use on top of um, the 12-step work. And I, I, I was a part of the meeting for four years prior to COVID um, that was in person. And then um, we know how that goes. And so I actually found this amazing women's group that I'm a part of, and um, I'm so deeply grateful for it. And we meet every week on Zoom. And 
you know, the word practice came to mind. And, and one of my resources is the Book of Awakenings by Mark Nepo. I don't know if any of you know that, but um, he has 365 days of daily meditations. And so every single day I wake up and I read a meditation and I'm on year three of this book. Um, and I wanted to read this before I read you something that I myself wrote. It's called Practicing. And this is how I approach my ACOA work um, and how I approach my, my broader based healing work in, in life. As a man in his last breath drops all he is carrying, each breath is a little death that can set us free. Breathing is the fundamental unit of risk, the atom of inner courage that lets us into authentic living. With each breath, we practice opening taking in and releasing, literally. The teacher is under our nose. When anxious, we simply have to remember to breathe. So often we make a commitment to change our ways but stall in the face of old reflexes as new situations arise. When gripped by fear or anxiety, the reflexes to hold on, speed up or remove oneself. Yet when we feel the reflex to hold on, that is usually the moment we need to let go. When we feel the urgency to speed up, that is typically the instant we need to slow down. Often we feel the impulse to flee. It is the opportunity to face ourselves. Taking a deep meditative breath precisely at this moment can often break the momentum of anxiety and put our psyche in neutral. From here, we just might be able to step in another direction. I'm not talking about external moments of anxiety here, but inner moments of truth. Certainly when an accident is unfolding, we need to get out of the way. When a loved one falls, we need to try to hold them. Rather, I'm talking about fear of love and truth and God, fear of change and the unknown. I'm talking about how we all grip tightly to what we know, even if we hurt ourselves in the process. <coughs> Excuse me one sec. Dropping all we carry, all our preconceptions, our interior lists of the ways we failed and the ways we've been wronged, all the secret burdens we work at maintaining, dropping all regret and expectation lets our mentality die. Dropping all we have constructed as imperative allows us to be born again into the simplicity of spirit that arises from unencumbered being. It is often overwhelming to imagine changing our entire way of life. Where do we begin? How do we take down a wall that took 25 or 50 years to erect? Breath by breath, little death, by little death, dropping all we carry instant by instant, trusting that what has done the carrying, if freed, will carry us. And that's how I try to do it. Um, and it's, it's not easy because I feel like I have died countless deaths in my life. I've had my soul taken away and um, ACOA has um, allowed me to see my soul in a new way and, and to uh, bring to life that which was always there. So in my process to coming to life um, and how do I continue to practice with ACOA, I do some drawing. I'm a terrible artist. But I, I do wanna show you guys um, this picture. This was one of my first drawings four years ago of my inner child. I don't know if you can see, 
but she's lying on the floor in a closet. And I realized in coming to ACOA that my inner child, she lived in the closet still in the house I grew up in. There was this big closet between my room and my parents' room. And I used to sleep in there because I was scared all the time. And then I felt safer in there. So I have a series of drawings that show the progression of her over the years. And this was probably done like two years ago or so where she came out of the closet and that's my adult self with my inner child. And the way I learned to parent her was how I parent my boys. And um, I don't really know exactly how I did it. I just followed my heart and I still follow my heart. So drawing has been um, an instrumental part of my um, ACOA work. And then I am a writer. One of the things that I do for my work is writing. Um, but it all started when I was uh, very young and I started to write uh, poetry and stories and minored in writing in college. And when I started my ACOA work, I had stopped writing because I write for work. So I had stopped writing for pleasure. And when I started this work, the words started to pour out of my head. And I started writing poetry, but it didn't feel right. So the poetry very, very quickly turned to slam. And as my kids say, mom, you channel your inner M&M. So this is the second slam that I wrote. Um, it's my story that's been edited a bit and it's called Onion. And I'd like to share it with all of you. Peeling my onion, try as you may, try as you might. It's been quite a fight, hell was my life. The true role nourishment played in yesterday and today, a triumph for sure, but so much endured. Childhood trauma, adolescent too, I did not choose this pain, but it made me insane. So I turned to what I adored, a kind grandmother who fostered expre creative expression through food, a place to be free exploring the deep places of me through color, texture, flavor. You see my connection burned at the core. But what was in store were eating disorders, physical illness from the torment that was eating me through and through. Looked at constantly like a buffoon, but at the age of 16, a summer job cooking in a health food cafe taught how to eat clean. Dirty I was from the trauma received. So my quest for pure ingredients, healthy food, true nourishment was the only way to shout from the life that was eating away from inside to out. It opened the doors to so much more. Books read, therapy, doctors, healers, seen. I feverishly learned an incredible support system creating new seams, bigger dreams in store, food investigated, cooking explorer, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian too, macrobiotics and more. I grew doing all this stuff way before it was cool. My anti-inflammatory purist regime and moderation it seems plus gluten-free for almost 18 is what keeps me healthy from all this dis-ease. Physical and emotional, no difference you see. Autoimmune kidneys, parathyroid, it seems more story to tell my diagnostic hell, I'd rather not dwell. So culinary school, a master's in nutrition too, healing, yes, but pain still stuck like glue. I continued to blame myself for all that I couldn't be accepting the reality of trauma is 
too hard to swallow. I didn't want to wallow. So I locked myself in a room to write what the fork and folded into creating food truth uncorked. I thought it could be something to release me, helping others you see my own healing plea. So I bring to my work the offerings I've learned to help others along the way turn into their grave. Food can help heal. If we know what to do, it worked for me. I am living proof. I walk each day, standing tall, managing illness, feeling clean. So I scream, welcome to me and the truth behind my book, a labor of love and pain. There is so much to gain from my journey, my writing, my love and energy to you. Take one small thing away from what I do and perhaps it will help you. I am no judge of others, just here to share my truth. Given these kitchen clogs to walk in, I wear them with pride and walk side by side with people who want to express what's inside, take care of themselves like I tried my entire life. <clears throat> it kept me alive, learning how to nourish inside my onion, slicing and dicing the layers back like a culinary hack until I realized the key was about gently cutting and peeling towards <clears throat> to get to the center so life could be better. I realized it was never me. Releasing the story you see a pinnacle for sure allows me to be free. I can truly help more. So if you want to heal your relationship with eats, it could be a start to open up your heart. It's about love, community. So come cook with me, learn how to nourish thee as a woman and mother, heart, mind, and palms open. I'm humbly here to help you peel your onion. So that was an ode to my journey to my grandmother, thank you. And to my work that has um, been an enormous part of, of keeping me here today. And I've had many resources in, in books. Um, ACOA has helped me set boundaries and, and hold to them. <clears throat> um, spent a lot of time as, as a kid in temple with my uh, abuser. And I hated it. And um, I questioned if there was a God. Um, it's been a rocky road for me. And so I've always believed in a universal energy or truth and um, ACOA has helped me become really comfortable with trusting in a higher power and, and really trusting in myself to trust that, uh, which is a big deal for me. Clean eating has helped and cooking. <clears throat> I'm a nature junkie. I like to be in the nature. I like to be in nature at all times. I'm, I'm pretty hardcore. I live by the water. And I, I swim in a wetsuit in the bay from May till December. Um, solitude to gift. Staying connected to those who truly see me. So I'm super grateful for ACOA. Um, and staying connected to the practice. Um, you know, when I started with ACOA, um, I tried out a red book meeting and I tried a yellow book meeting. And then um, there was a laundry list workbook meeting locally as well. And um, fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, um, 
the laundry list workbook meeting was the only one that actually fit my schedule. So that's where I ended up. And so um, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, and my therapist kept saying to me, slow down, slow down. Cause I'm super type a, you know, I joke, I have a lot of letters after my name and I always say it ends with OCD and ADD. So that's my, you know, addiction. And um, so my work is really uh, with this program is really based on this laundry list workbook. Um, and, you know, I was going through the, the, the 12 traits in the book, which are really 14. And I decided, you know, I'm just going to do 12. Um, and some of the things that really stood out to me, um, you know, for uh, step one, um, some of the things that were written, our families were not safe enough for us to feel comfortable being ourselves. Thus, we isolated ourselves by burying, hiding, denying, abandoning, and betraying our true self. That's exactly what I did. And I didn't think I was doing that. I was doing what I loved, you know? Um, I was living a decent life, but um, I was bound. I was bound. And until I was, I was ready to <clears throat> let go of, of whatever falsity I was trying to hold up, um, I wasn't gonna go anywhere. And so I, I really needed to face the pain uh, for two, step two, when a parent is emotionally, physically, or spiritually absent, the child learns to reverse the relationship current flow and instead becomes the one who works to gain the approval of their caregiver by acting in a way <clears throat> that seems to get the caregiver's, caregiver's attention and love. I couldn't do enough to get my parents to see me. Um, God, I was so sick as a kid. That couldn't even get them to see me. I was a nuisance to them. I didn't know how I was going to untangle that, you know, and that's, you know, that was when, you know, the higher power had to come knocking at my door and, and, and uh, I had to be willing to see that this higher power did not have to be Jewish, did not have to go to temple, did not have to be in the pages of, you know, a Torah. Um, and did not have to have my grandfather's imprint on it or my father's. Um, in step three, the families we grew up, the families we grew up in were usually loaded with hostility, both spoken and unspoken. As a result of our early exposure to this anger and the accompanying criticism, we became sensitive to any <clears throat> actual expression of anger or criticism. I used to think that I never understood my parents. Everybody was inferior to my family. It was the most bizarre thing. My parents did nothing wrong. We would have people in our house and, and in our lives one day and they'd be gone the next. And it was never my parents' fault. Never my parents' fault. And they would berate and belittle people. I always used to wonder what they were saying about me. Um, and I, I remember, you know, doing this ACA work and, and feeling, you know what, they're not my gods. They're not my gods. I have another God. 
So again, more surrendering. Um, instead of becoming dependent, this is step four, instead of becoming dependent on alcohol or some other substance, we chose, we chose to dose ourselves with an internal concoction of pain, fear, and excitement. By becoming the dominant player, we controlled the ebb and flow of our relationships. With this tactic, we chose to connect only with those we could keep at arm's length. The end result was no different with the alcoholic or dysfunctional family. We protected our true self by creating a false self to hide our authentic needs and wants. <clears throat> I don't think the inventory ever stops. It never stops. You know, you go on cycles. And um, with my women's group, we're on step four right now. And I literally want to scratch my eyeballs out. And I've done it multiple times. Um, but it's really hard work. And it's, it's really where the rubber meets the road for me for seeing these relationships as I evolve and grow as a woman, as a mother, um, you know, as a wife, as a survivor, um, it shifts constantly. And I just have to be willing to look at it, which I am. Step five, our dysfunctional families bound us in their toxic mix of hurt and anguish coupled with denial and defiance. All members of the family are given one of four roles, victim, victimizer, rescuer one, or rescuer two. As a result of this conditioning, we grew up feeling disempowered and unable to make healthy choices. So I was the conditioned victim. And I was also, um, part of my birth contract was actually to, to rescue my father. And to, um, I don't know what he expected from me. But it, it wasn't just the role of the daughter. It was, it was um, now that I, I look back on it, it wasn't healthy and it wasn't right and it wasn't fair. Um, so again, admitting shortcomings, just looking at all of these relationships and breaking them down. Um, and trying to understand my role in it. And I think that um, for me, really admitting that what happened to me wasn't my fault was, was literally the hardest thing for me to do. I couldn't say the word incest until four years ago. I could never say that word. So, um, yeah. So step six is young children, our sense of having magical powers is overused to give us a sense of normalcy in the chaotic and destructive families we were raised in. The discomfort of honestly looking at ourselves, our pain and our losses was easily overshadowed by our inclination habit of looking for others whom we could be responsible. Meanwhile, the unexpressed memories from our traumatic childhood continued festering, continued to fester, to be acted out repeatedly, producing a paradoxical mixture of us being helpful to others while injurious to our true self. I'm in the helping profession. I spent years, 20 years, working with people who are gravely ill, stage four cancer, you know, um, diabetes, uh, you know, kidney disease, liver disease. Um, and I realized that that work is invaluable in so many respects, um, but it also kept me far from facing my own troubles because it was easier to just be in others. So, um, so yeah, so seven, 
Um, perhaps the greatest loss we suffered as children was losing our ability to stand up for ourselves. The aggressive demand by the family to deny what was actually happening was extraordinary and for a defenseless child, overwhelming. Although we felt that our submission was wrong, we died countless small deaths as we joined in the dysfunction of denying the obvious and in turn our true self, the birthright of expression. I constantly ask my higher power to remove my shortcomings, my defects of character. And in my morning mantra, I always say that I, I will forever be in the place of uh, discovery and recovery. And that's, you know, that's an interesting admission when I have, uh, you know, a, a two parents who are addicts and they stopped drinking um, over 10 years ago, but they never went for any kind of help. So they're dry drunks. And as, as my brother and I joke, they were actually much more pleasant to be around when they were drinking. Um, we seek out negative excitement, dangerous situations, travel with untrustworthy individuals and live life precariously, all the while complaining about our circumstances. Negative excitement can come from <clears throat> being with a victim, victimizer or rescuer. In each role, the internal dosing leaves us emotionally intoxicated. Made a list of those we harmed and were willing to make amends. Step eight. Now, um, I think my life would have gone a very different direction if I didn't have the courage to leave my first husband. I would have stayed in a heartbreaking cycle. And um, I don't know what carried me to where I am now. I really don't. All I can say is it was an internal light and a drive and my dog and my Nana and my best friend. That's it. You know, it's like what prevents somebody from getting hit by a taxi when they cross the street. You know, sometimes it's just divine intervention. And that's sometimes what I feel. In our families, the constant conflict of perceptions and realities left us prone to being confused about a great many things. Without our perceptions and realities being validated, being, being valid, validates empathetic family, we have doubt about such fundamental things as love and pity. You know, the interesting thing is I realized that, um, that in my story, um, there weren't many amends that I had to make with other people because, you know, they're, I think mostly probably with my brother and, and that was it, but he's just so far gone that he couldn't even hear anything. Um, But I, I stayed out of a lot of people's way. That was what I became very good at. And I think the amends were mostly with myself. And, and, you know, and maybe there are more, you know, I think with my husband too, I have more amends to make with him because God, I don't know, you know, he takes the brunt of, of me sometimes, you know, uh, in our families, the constant conflict, no, wait, that's, I read 10 and I'm almost done. I'm gonna finish with one reading. In an effort to deal with our overwhelming childhood traumas, we learned to stuff our feelings to survive the disruption of our sense of safety. To survive, we disassociated from our reality and adapted to survive. We exchanged feelings of pain with the relief of not feeling at all. The game of disassociation. 
continue to take personal inventory and readily admitted wrongs. You know, I think just realizing that I've been disassociated most of my life um, was a real fucking wake up call um, and really scary having two kids. I was like, I'm not doing this the way my parents did it. And, and um, I forced myself to do this work for them, for me and for them. There were a few in our family of community who could see our suffering as a child, the need to idealize our circumstances left a disconnect between our reality and our fantasy. If we could not be supported in our anger toward our family, that anger had to go somewhere. And the only place we could safely place that anger was ironically against ourselves. Sought a practice to improve conscious contact with self and higher power. My parents had me in, 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 a, you know, in the jaws of life. Um, and there was a lot of bleeding for me to break free. And, and I'm very blessed in that I have a husband who really supported that breaking free. Um, and we're on the other side of it now, but it was really bloody for, for a lot of years. Um, and I wouldn't, wouldn't wanna ever go through it again. But keeping boundaries is hard, you know? And, and keeping my wounds cauterized is, is still work. Hidden behind our inability to bond with others is a stark truth. We prefer being alone. Ha, huh. that's something I struggle with. I like being alone more than anything in this world. And that's not easy when you're married and you've got kids and my work, I don't mind not being alone because I can shield in my work. So um, that's safe. So I, I wrote this poem last week, um, kind of in response to this step four that we're doing in our women's group. And it's, it's called Hallway of Healing. Um, and I'll finish with this and then I'm, I'm gonna open it up with, um, I guess a question to everybody. On the other side of pain, there are no more stains on your soul. Rather, you feel whole and think, was this all a bad joke? The hallway of healing helps stop the stealing. Yet, as you walk through past experiences, traumas stuck like glue, sticky it feels. As you trudge through the corridor, little do you know there is an inner warrior coming into the light. No more need to fight for your life. The hallway to healing has helped make it right. 12 steps it has taken to get where you are, far from where you were. So as you walk through your hallway of healing, never look back to attack yourself, rather to seek clarity for all they couldn't be. Find resolve in knowing it was never you who put you in these shoes. So take them off and walk down the hall. Do not stall. Feel your feet on the ground, down the 12 steps to relish what's ahead, no more blood shed. The hallway of healing has helped you walk through what once felt impossible. Courageous you are. Welcome to the other side of pain. Embrace all your gains. No more stains. So I leave you all with that. And my work has evolved into really looking at the intersection of nourishment and trauma. So how do we lose the ability to nourish ourselves when we've experienced trauma? And so what I want to end with is just 
throwing out to all of you, how do you nourish yourself? And so I thank you deeply for hearing me. This was not easy. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Stephanie.